when a character is so fully formed in your mind that things seem to happen without your intervention, that is, that is a well-rounded character, one that your readers will really love. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks! It's... It's been a time, hasn't it? Apologies for dropping the ball like that, but... Gestures at the world. The pandemic hit me with a vengeance, and I had just enough mental and physical energy over the last two years to do my day job, and survive day to day. Additionally, since I now work remotely from home, I don't listen to nearly as many podcasts as I used to, and it felt weird to produce a podcast when I wasn't listening to any on my own. Additionally, additionally, I've been having some thoughts on rebranding this podcast. You'll note that this is the 50th episode, which is definitely worth celebrating, but I'll be honest, back when I was doing this regularly, I wasn't getting a lot of listeners. And I wasn't getting a lot of feedback. And one of the things I kept coming back to was how difficult this is to market. Especially with the title. You've got the unusual spelling of geek, as well as the issue with my name, which, for better or for worse, is not very search engine friendly. Podcast overall was very difficult to find unless you knew what you were looking for. This is a very roundabout way to say that you may be seeing some changes with the next episode. I'm contemplating changing the title making it a bit more marketable, so stay tuned. If you follow me on Twitter or like my website's Facebook page, I make updates on there on a regular basis. Now, another apology. The interview you're about to hear isn't new. It was recorded actually fairly early still in the pandemic, April of 2020 to be precise. But, as I mentioned, the pandemic made my personal world kind of blow up, and so it took until now for me to finally get up the energy to sit down and edit it. Thankfully, there's not much that's outdated about it. Jody Lynn Nye is a fantasy and science fiction writer that has been active since 1987. I met her thanks to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Awards, where she's been a judge since 2016. She has over 40 books and 120 short stories published, and is still going strong. We talk about the contest, her writing inspirations, and more. My name is Jody Lynn Nye, and I write quite a bit of things, including science fiction and fantasy, most of it with a humorous bent. Now, Jody, you and I met at the Writers of the Future, not last year, but the year before, I want to say. Is that correct? I thought it was 2019, but it might have been 2019. Might have been 2019. They all kind of blend together after a while. (laughs) (laughs) And based off of Wikipedia, which we all know is so, so accurate, uh, it says you've been involved with them since 2017. Is that correct? That is correct. I have been a judge for three years. Let's uh, start a little bit first with kind of how you got into that. Did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did that come about? They had been asking me, actually asking my husband to approach me about being on the uh, judging staff for some time, but I had quite a lot going on and I wasn't certain if it was going to work out. And finally, they did talk me into it. I discovered after I started asking questions that a huge number of my friends were already judges. 
and they were very glad to have me join their number. And it's, if I remember right, two weeks that you work with the uh, finalists? No, it, it's a week. It's a long and very intense week. Actually, it might run to nine days. Most of the seminar that they receive, which is an amazing, awesome prize, it's better than the money, it's better than the trophy, they get to work with David Farland and Timothy Powers as their instructors for an entire week. And each of the judges who attends gives them also a talk on the subject of writing, deportment. You have no idea how important that actually is. And marketing. There's a marketing seminar at the end of the session. And just showing them that they are now part of the writing community. They can consider us peers, mentors, whatever they need to have. Now, you also do the uh, annual science fiction writing workshop at DragonCon. How does yes. that compare? Is it very similar in terms of what you do? Or is it like, since you're working with probably a little bit different uh, people, do you, you know, how do you change up your what you do there? The people who are the winners of the Writers of the Future contest are very experienced and extremely talented. They're the top of thousands and thousands of people who submit stories to the contest. I have people who are almost completely not published yet. They are willing to learn, they want to learn, but they're not in a position yet where they would be grand prize winners, but someday they may be. They're very interesting, talented people in their own right but they have some polishing that still needs to be done before they would be winners of the contest. I actually start with them with a manuscript. This is unlike the Writers of the Future contest because I critique a manuscript, a portion of a book or an entire short story for them. We workshop it in the sort of round table fashion that everybody reads it, everybody has a few things to say, and then I come in with my comments, and then the writer, if, if he or she is still conscious, gets to ask his or her own questions. So there is very little finished writing at the Writers of the Future seminar because there just isn't time. They do write a 24-hour story, which is unbelievably difficult for them. Uh, we've all done it. All of the pros have done it. And we know what they're going through, but it's an experiment in making the best use of your time. Those get critiqued, but it isn't in the same fashion because it's unlikely that those are going to be published. It's a writing experiment, but a good one and a necessary one to show them they are capable of really delving down and doing the hard thing in a very short period of time and still sleeping and eating. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've written, you know, over 40 books and over, you know, 120 short stories. And I have to correct Wikipedia because it's actually 170 short stories and over 50 books. Awesome. I did double check on your website, but there weren't specific numbers there. <laughs> At least not that I could find. You've written in a wide variety of genres, both, you know, fantasy, fi uh, science fiction. You've done some nonfiction. Uh, I always like uh, asking writers because it, there's a lot of similarities, but also each writer has like a specific definition. How do you determine the difference between fantasy and science fiction? Because there is so much overlap between the two. If you want to go the hard route with science fiction, the science has to work. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's our physics that we're dealing with but it must be consistent. The moment you introduce something that is actually impossible, 
or that you have established rules within your world and then you exceed them, you're writing fantasy. If you have everything hard science and there's no such thing as ghosts and a ghost suddenly pops up, unless you have made that part of your physics or other kinds of science, uh, quantum mechanics, then you've delved into fantasy. So it's the difference between the impossible and the possible. Do you have a favorite genre that, or do you like, you know, rotating around? Oh, if I take a fancy to a writer, it doesn't matter what they have started out writing. I've found some incredibly wonderful things. Also in fields that I would never have thought were for me. I generally avoid paranormal stuff, but I just discovered, I'm going to say Chloe Elliott, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, she writes the Chicagoland Vampire series. And when we were reviewing books for Galaxy's Edge magazine, which my husband and I did for four years, uh, I came across her book and I thought it was wonderful. So I'm a fan now. I came across S.K. Dunstall, who had written something that approaches space opera, but had some really terrific ideas in it, unusual things. So maybe I would not have picked them up before, but I will now. And in your own writing, do you have a preference in terms of writing one or the other? Or is there a specific genre you tend to go to more often, do you feel? I seem to get assignments to do fantasy more often than science fiction, but I can write science fiction. I enjoy it. I generally, as in my Lord Thomas Kanaga books, throw a measure of humor into it, but I can write pathos. I can write serious things. A couple of people were shocked rigid at my stories in the fleet, which are not particularly funny, but they were stories about a war going on. I can write whatever I need to. Well, uh, and then I read that it says that you've, quote unquote, always told show, uh, stories to your, your younger brothers and cousins and as a, a junior camp counselor. Tell me the moment that you realized that this is something that you could do, quote unquote, for a living, that this is it was something beyond more than just something that you were doing in your spare time kind of thing. That didn't come until I was an adult. I submitted a story to Analog to Stanley Schmidt when I was 19 years old, and I thought, why not? I came up with a story that had a humorous bent in it. It was a science fiction story. It involved an android and, and some humans. And I sent it in. I did not know any other writers. So I didn't know what the protocol was. I didn't know anything except to be polite and to the point. So I sent in my story. And I got a rejection letter from Stan. But it was a, an actual letter. It wasn't just, uh, I'm sorry, this does not suit our needs. It was a missive from him saying, I've seen this plot before, perhaps too much, uh, but I really like your style. Please send me something else. And I didn't. Oh. I chickened out. <laughs> it's hard to say. It's still hard to say. I told Stan, I think, year before last that that was what I had done. And he, he chided me because he said, when I said I wanted something else, I meant it. But I didn't know who else to ask. Before that, I probably was not really thinking of who was writing the books I was reading. I was copious reader, still still am, still will pick any book off a shelf if I fancy the, the cover. And I don't know what took me so long to figure out that I could be one of those people. But sooner or later, I started saying, yes, um, I'm reading these things. I could do something like that. I could do it better. I really think that this story would, would have legs. 
Well, and one of the things I always like to ask writers, because the answer is, again, like with everything else, the answer is different depending on who I ask. Uh, when I talked to Nancy Kress, we, we mentioned that there are two types of writers. There are planters, uh, you know, growers, basically the people who organize everything. And then the, there are pantsers, people who write by the seat of their pants. Uh, what do you do? <laughs> I'm a planter. <laughs> I put down every single detail that I can think of about what I have in mind and Usually within a page or two, I am already writing scenes and dialogue. And when I have written out every single thing I can think of about my new idea, then I start organizing it. But it never approaches the kind of formal outline that, say, Mercedes Lackey does. She does amazing outlines, and they are quite long, very, very detailed. But I still know where I'm going. I know the characters that I'm going to introduce. Like I said, I might have dialogue and description already. I might have the smatterings of scenes. But I probably will never write out a chapter-by-chapter -chapter outline. Well, and this is another one. I'm sure, I hate the question, where do you get your ideas? Because I know as a writer myself, it, it depends. <laughs> but what I, I do uh, find out, do you, do you normally have the idea or the character first, typically? Sometimes it's the location. My Mythology 101 book was based upon a location. It was my college library. It was such an amazing place full of beautiful, beautiful wood and marble. The reading room was something that you would see in an old time movie. It was gorgeous. And when you went into the stacks in the back, and especially even late at night, when I would be sitting there reading something off the, the astonishing range of shelves that they had, you could still hear voices. And that sort of went into the back of my mind. And one day I thought, I wonder who, where those voices are coming from. I wonder who those voices are, who the people are. And somehow it got made into, what if there were little people living in the library? <laughs> what if nobody knew about them except maybe one or two people? Well, and that leads into, I mean, the myth books, I'll be admitted, that's kind of how I first heard of you and probably my favorite of your uh, of works, although I know I have some short stories and some of the uh, short story books that I have that, that you've mm -hmm. written. What do you think is your, what's not inspiration, but what makes you, what, what makes those stories so unique, do you think? The mythology series is, a, is contemporary humorous fantasy about a college student in the Midwest. And the myth adventures are about an apprentice magician that Bob started. The first book was published in 1978, believe it or not. It's been that long. And I love them on site. So I realized that it was uh, a turning point for me because I had not read funny fantasy or funny science fiction before. So that was a valuable light coming on for me, realizing that the kind of things that I really love to do, yes, could actually be stories that other people might like to read. And I love those characters very much. Bob was good enough to trust me with them I will not let him down. I will keep them the way that they are and continue to have stories that are the kind of tales that their, the fans would like to read. Well, I know that a lot of your books are collaborations. Um, how is it different writing with somebody else versus writing by yourself? Do you find it easier, harder, or just different? It's different. Every single collaboration, even subsequent books with the same person, always have something different about them. And you should always, with a collaborator, be prepared to do 100% of the work for one reason or another. 
you have to be prepared to pick up the slack if for some reason they simply can't write what they were supposed to do, and they should be prepared to do the same for you. The most important thing of working with any other person is respect. You have to have respect for their talent, their ability to get the job done. You don't have to like them, but you must respect them. So I find it, I write faster with a collaborator than I do on my own because I have to explain to them all of the details of why I want to do something. Not just the text alone, but notes, copious notes about what I thought about these characters or what I thought about this scene and exchange that up and back. Most recently, I've been working with Dr. Travis Taylor, who is an actual rocket scientist. So the moon books that we have written about the six kids doing science on the moon, Moonbeam and now Moon Tracks, we have a huge file of notes that we send back and forth, and that's outside of the manuscripts themselves. You have to keep people up to date. I used to know a couple of friends, they were sort of writing extended fan fiction, and they never really codified the things that they were doing. So in the end, they were publishing stories where each of them spelled certain words differently, that made up words that they had come up with for their series. And they didn't even know. They never realized it until I pointed it out to them. And I thought that was kind of funny. So lay the groundwork, talk about everything, clarify what you need to do, and ask for help if you can't do something. I am Nancy Press. And I very much enjoyed being on Angie Fiedler Sutton's podcast. She does a wonderful job, and you should listen. You can find me on various social media, including TikTok now, at Angie F. Sutton. You can support me by rating and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see links to my social media on all the places you can listen to the podcast over at my website, AngieFSutton.com. And now... Back to my interview with author Jody Lynn Nye. Now, you've been writing since, you know, the 80s. Obviously, the publishing industry has changed tremendously with the invention of the internet and mm -hmm. technology growth and all that. What would you say is the pluses and minuses of working now versus working back then? The pluses? I was concerned when ebooks started to happen because I was worried about piracy, which by the way, is still a huge problem. They're getting even more wily than ever. There is something that said that it would be the archive library and this was going to be available to people now that the everyone has to, to shelter in place. And it turns out that they are scam artists. I was concerned about getting paid and not having my work ripped off and sent all over the world because this is the way I make a living. This is my job. On the good side, you can send in a manuscript to a publisher and get a reply very quickly. And you can be confident that the manuscript actually reached them, which it was not always the case with the post office. And things happen to big manuscripts. Also, it was an enormous waste of paper. When you walk into any publisher's office, you have a chest high stack of manuscripts next to almost every desk. And that is the product of a week or maybe a, even a month, certainly not a year. So being able to send something in that's made of pixels and can just be easily deleted if it isn't wanted is far more economical and ecological. It also means that you can get answers back very quickly. I once submitted a story to Bain's Universe magazine and I sent it in the night before I had an answer in the morning. 
It was an acceptance, of course, so I was very happy about that. But it was that quick. There are lots of benefits. It does mean that quite a lot of things that should not be published do get published because anybody can put out a book. And you don't need to go past a gatekeeper, but it would be wise to have a gatekeeper, even if it's a copy editor or developmental editor that you hire. But somebody should have their eyes on it after you finish with it. There's a sort of feeling that once you have written it, you can just throw it up there, and many people do. Equally, though, there are a lot of good people who would never get published by a traditional publisher because it's hard to define the genre that their piece fits into, and they should be published. So I'm very glad that that's available for them. What would you say uh, for yourself the hardest part of writing for you? Oh, well, I'm a I'm a bit of a procrastinator, so <laughs> that that doesn't help. I don't do as badly as as I might. After all, I am a freelancer. And if I don't work, I don't eat. And if I don't eat and the cats don't eat, this becomes a problem. So I do the work, but I have been known to also uh, volunteer for too many things. <laughs> that's, that's probably not good. But if a project sounds like fun, I want in on it. I want to do that. So I will say yes to things that probably I should not. Now, I won't say what's the easiest, but I will ask, what's your favorite part of being a writer? Oh, when it starts flowing and you can feel it flowing, it's wonderful. I once wrote a short story, actually quite a long short story, in a single day and read it at a writing series that evening. Now, I've never done that again, but <laughs> it, it proves I can do it. And it was just, it just fell out of me. I was, and I was having so much fun with it that I just really enjoy it. When it works, it works. And when it's just popping along, and the voices are coming out of you and the description is coming out of you. And sometimes you feel as though you have no idea where this is coming from. But it is your creativity. It is your subconscious. So that is, that is pretty awesome. Do you have a daily routine or do you mix it up? No, I really do have a daily routine. I get up, I feed the cats, I make my cocoa, and I sit down on the couch with my computer. And I get up a lot. You know, put the computer down. I, I've taken up knitting fairly recently in the last couple of years. I do a little bit of that. I walk around, I make something to eat. I sit down again, I work some more. For me, that works better than just three or four or eight hours of slog. If I break it up, then I'm able to maintain a day's work. So uh, usually about four o'clock, things start to wind down and I get ready for the evening, make dinner, answer my email. I never, ever answer my email before noon. So if somebody needs to get in touch with me, they either need to text me or send me a note the night before because my most creative energy is in the morning. Sometimes I get started very early when I'm coming close to finishing a book. I will wake up four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning and get to work. I sleep only long enough for the sleep toxins to be out of my body. But I seem to have the same ending point, no matter what I do. One of your, your main career activity, according to your website, is spoiling cats. And yes. you've written a lot with dragons. And I, so I have a question for you. Why are so many dragons written like cats? <laughs> well, they seem to have similar personalities. They are very much self-fulfilling. They are selfish about what they want. They are not self-sacrificing like dogs are. I was once on a wonderful panel uh, at a Los Angeles Worldcon with Connie Willis, who said, it was called, are there too many cats in science fiction? And she said, the question is not, are there too many cats in science fiction, but why aren't there more bulldogs? 
But the fact is you can have a story about a cat or a dragon that can be humorous, that can be, uh, it can be tragic, but most stories about dogs will end up being tragic because they will throw their lives away for you. And cats and dragons would never do that. McCaffrey's dragons were as close as any dragon would come to, to sacrificing themselves or putting themselves in harm's way for you, for their rider. They do have a lot in common. I, I've always said that fire lizards are pretty much just kittens with thumbs and wings. <laughs> I just, I find it interesting that they're more cat-like than, say, lizard-like, <laughs> which considering that dragons are technically giant lizards. <laughs> oh, it depends also on the dragon and the culture it comes from. True. They're not necessarily lizards. Uh, some dragons are furry, some have feathers, and they are extremely powerful, but... Humans are fascinated by them. We, I think we fascinated ever since the first primeval person came across a dinosaur skeleton and said, what is that? And somebody came up with an explanation. Well. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I really like that idea that the idea of dragons came around because people came across dinosaur bones and weren't quite sure what to make of them. <laughs> we are a, a race of storytellers. We find an explanation for something that we do not understand. And at first, it's fiction until we can explore it and discover what the real truth is. But I think a lot is lost when you suddenly reveal the science of something, and it's not a mystery anymore, and that, that takes half the fun out of it. Now, where do you go to get your inspiration? Who are you inspired by in terms of either as a writer or just to, you know, not necessarily to get your ideas, but to refill that creative well? I read the science news. I am fascinated by the things that people are doing, astronomy, uh, astrophysics, medicine, biology, geology, all sorts of things. The taxonomy is now in the hands of the people who are baby boomers, which is how we got a Salazar Slytherin snake just very recently. <laughs> and I think it's fantastic. So when I get a great science article, sometimes it inspires me to write something. Uh, whether or not I have a purpose for it at the moment. My Taylor's Arc books, which are my medical science fiction about my lady doctor in space. She is an environmental specialist. I read about something that was a gene that when inhibited creates progeria, which is premature aging in people. And there are children that suffer from this and become little old men and little old ladies before your eyes. And I found that years and years ago and I thought, huh, well, a lot of stories start with, well, what if? And then they go on to say, well, what if something went terribly wrong? So I wrote a story that in which it went terribly wrong. And not two years later, not uh, unfortunately after the book came out, there was more science news about, and if something really bad happened, this is what would happen. And I felt, ha. <laughs> I felt really satisfied about having so stolen a march on the scientists by extrapolation. And that's a lot of what we do in science fiction, is extrapolate on what we know now and figure out what we could know in the future. Now, back to the whole, uh, both the writers of the future as well as your, your science fiction writing workshop. You're obviously you know, teaching a lot, so what would you say is the one piece of advice you tend to give the most often? Know your craft. Absolutely know your craft. Not only grammar and spelling, but know what's out there. Read, 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 read. 
see what is on the shelves now, because you'll be inspired by something that came before, and you'll build upon that. You'll build upon being able to read that. And then later on, that person might read your work if you are inspired by them, and it will change what they think about writing and what they are doing. So there's a lot of giving and taking, and I think it's very healthy for people to learn from each other and learn and improve. But I also tell people, don't wait for somebody to give you permission to write, do it. If you need permission, I give you permission. Write the thing that you have always wanted to write. Create the thing you've always wanted to create because we need stuff to read too. So please give us things to read. Please give us your wonderful idea. Now, you were born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. How many years did you spend in Chicago? All my life up until then. I went away to college for a while. Uh, I went to summer camp, but beyond that, I lived in Chicago all my life until December. And then apparently you were on the technical operations staff of WFBN, (laughs) serving as a technical operations manager. How much of Chicago and, and that has influenced your work, would you say? Oh, tons. I think that Chicago is a wonderful source of inspiration. I think that the mindset of people who live in Chicago is we can get things done. We will get things done and weather be damned. I actually helped build the TV station from the walls inward and I was under the aegis of a very intelligent and clever chief engineer who designed the system that was used for broadcast. Our transmitter was in an extremely tiny space, but he designed technology that made use of that. So he should have won an award for that. I don't know if he did. So uh, it was a great learning experience and watching office politics, unfortunately, never good no matter where you are. But I got a lot out of working for the chief engineer, made me utterly unafraid of technology. Okay, well, as we start to wind down, how can people find you if they don't know already where to find you? I have a website at jodylynnye.com or jodynye.net if you choose to look for it, J-O-D-Y-N-Y-E. I have three N's and three Y's in my name, so it's not J-O-D-I. I am occasionally on Twitter, but almost always on Facebook. It's Jody Lynn Nye, J-O-D-Y-L-Y-N-N-N-Y-E. And let's see, beyond that. Uh, What are you currently geeking out about and why? Oh, I have been researching a book to work with Eric Flint in the 1632 universe. And I have come across some of the most amazing research books. And there's an author named Ruth Goodman who writes things like How to Behave Badly in Renaissance Britain. And they're terrific books. She has TV shows as well. But they're so much fun, and I just I bought three. I'm waiting for the third one to arrive. They're just uh, they're just awesome. What about them draw you? She does all of the research herself. She does things like live like a person of the 17th century or the six or the 16th century, and she can tell you exactly why people didn't stink in that era, <laughs> as a mere example. But it's tremendously interesting seeing how things actually did happen in a period of time. That is not all that far back in, the, in history, if you start to think about it. I mean, between one Elizabeth and the next, there's 400 years, but really isn't a long time in history. So it's very interesting to see just how much changed and when. 
that this was a time when inventions were coming out one after the other, that the Renaissance was on its way, and so many incredible minds that were coming to the fore. So I guess I'm geeking out on the 17th century. Cool. What are you currently working on? What can you tease us about? I am working on the next Myth Adventures book, and I'm having fun with that. I am not going to give you details about the internal portions of it, but its title is Ain't Myth Behaven. <laughs> and I, I miss Bob all the time, but I think that he would really have a lot of fun with that. I'm also, as I said, working with Eric Flint in the 1632 universe. I have a raft of short stories that I need to get done. And uh, every time someone comes to me with, with a project idea, like I said, it's very hard to say no. So, uh, so I frequently don't. But I tell people, say yes to opportunity. It may be the best thing that has happened to you. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Jody for letting me interview her. Thanks also to fellow Writers of the Future Award judge Nancy Kress. You can hear her interview in episode 26. As mentioned, the next issue is going to be a little different. I'm still planning things out, so I don't want to say too much, but I do plan on including a little summary of what I've been up to for the last two years. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknickin, available via the Free Music Archive. More information about the podcast is available on my website, angiefsutton.com. <laughs>